we have been working our way through Paul's letter to the Romans over the last number of weeks. And one of the opening arguments in Paul's letter is that everyone's a sinner. Now, maybe seems kind of obvious as we look around and we think, but we have to also look deeper at what Paul is getting at. We think, well, why is he spending so long with this? Those first three chapters, up until right now where we're at, the opening section where he talks about what the gospel is, but then he goes into this long series of talking about all these. Part of it is to remember why Paul was writing the letter. Paul was writing the letter to speak to a church that was divided, a church where people were looking at one another and one side was thinking they were better than the other, where one side was looking down and thinking we are superior to them. Maybe they, they were thinking they were less sinful. Maybe they were thinking they were had a better status in God's eyes. Maybe they thought that if they followed this set of rules or they did things this way, that's the right way to do things. So in part, what Paul is getting at is this issue of superiority. And what Paul seeks to do in these opening chapters is kind of bring everyone down to the same level. To remind everyone that no one has an advantage when it comes to being with God. That no one is superior. That all have missed God's glory or miss God's mark. And those kind of language will come up later. But to think about that, he's looking out at a congregation or he's writing a letter to a congregation and saying, look, you're all on the same footing. And not only that, that there is this sense where God sees everybody impartially. And he's dealing in part with this temptation, the human temptation to compare. And this is one of the challenges sometimes with sin is we might read through this list, and Paul addresses that in part, we might read through those and say, well, that's not me. Well, maybe that one is, but these other 19, that's somebody else. And that's how it often is. We look at things and we say, well, I'm not as bad as that person. Because it always makes us feel a little bit better. It's like, well, we're not the worst. I mean, we can see plenty of people who are a lot worse than us. But Paul says, no, this is what sin looks like, this desire to choose our way over God's way and what the consequences of that are. And we're going to look a little more at what these consequences are. But one of the other things we want to remember as we're reading this is this isn't an evangelism tract. He's writing to a church. So this isn't necessarily a demonstration of this is how you share the good news of Jesus by start telling people how bad they are. But he's writing to the church and saying, look, church, you are sitting over here and you are sitting over here. None of you are better than the other. We're all on this equal footing. And so he's introduced the gospel and he's kind of gone back and forth with this picture of one side and both sides being equal. And then he continues on. We're going to look in Romans 3 verse 9 and following. They started says, what shall we conclude then? And he's kind of having this conversation as he's writing this letter, speaking to the people saying, well, based on all this, what do we see? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. He's kind of making the question, well, is one side have a better standing in God's eyes? Does one side have a better? He says, no, not at all. He says, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. And these were these kind of two groups that he was addressing. He's saying, there's not one side that has a closer status with God, but all are under the power of sin. Or maybe your translation simply says under sin, which is a different way of thinking of it because we often think of sin in terms of things we do. 
sins as a list of things we do. And so some scholars differentiate, and the way I'd like to see it is one that I've been reading. Michael Gorman talks about it this way. He talks about sins with a little s and then sin, capital S. Sins, little s. And sins are the things we do. And we talked about all those earlier. He's like stealing, committing adultery, boasting, you know, and then he, early on, all these different things, these uh, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, God-haters, all these, these are sins. But then he says, here, he doesn't say, under the power of sin. In other words, that sin is personified, that it's this power, that there's something about sin that enslaves us, and we're going to come to that in a few chapters, but Paul is not simply creating this idea. It's something that goes back to the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, where Cain where kills his brother Abel, and God is speaking to Cain, and he says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. See how he paints sin as not simply an action. Because how can lies or deceit be crouching at your door. But instead what he's saying is sin is this power. It's something that seeks to overtake it. And it's not usually the way I think of sin. When I think of sin, I think of like, here's this list of things that you do wrong. But he's saying sin is more than that. That sin is more than simply a list of things we do wrong, but it's a power. And one of the things this power does is it makes evil appear inevitable and normal. And also what it recognizes is that when we talk about the good news of Jesus, that it does more than simply forgive us. It's forgiveness, but it's simply more. And one way to think of it is maybe to think of the sins we have as kind of the presenting problem. So if you go to the doctor and you say, doctor, I've, I've got this, this rash going on here and I've got this itch. Now the doctor might give you some sort of lotion to treat the itch. But is just the itch the real problem? Or is there something deeper going on? And sometimes we have that. We're saying, so, doctor, I'm struggling to breathe or I've got these issues. And so what we're looking at sometimes is there's a deeper sickness. What's causing these symptoms? Because we can simply treat the symptoms or we can treat the underlying illness. And that's one way to think of the difference between sin, capital S, and little sins. Sins are a symptom, but the real sickness is this power of sin that we're under. Or another way that we might think of it is an addiction. An addiction to drugs where there are these behaviors that people do, but they demonstrate their power of there's an underlying addiction. Something that they're enslaved to. And so sins, the idea of sins, little s versus sin, capital S, may be able to see our salvation more clearly. And we see that in these following verses of what this looks like. And so we're going to look at these ones that Bobby Joe read earlier and, and see how these maybe demonstrate this difference between sins and sin, but also what it looks like to be under the power of sin. And what we're getting at is, again, Paul is painting this picture in part to set people on equal footing, but he's also helping us to understand how desperate the situation is we're in. Because when we understand how desperate the situation we're in, the rescue seems that much greater. And so he's go on, and he begins by stringing together a series of verses. And as Bobby Joe shared, these verses 
come from places in our Old Testament. And so I would encourage you, most Bibles have, as you're reading along and you're looking in your Bible, you will know, say, there's no one righteous, not even one. And it goes on. And so, for example, mine in verse 12, it says, all have turned away, they've t- together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. And then there's a little letter A next to it. And if I look down at the bottom of my Bible, it says A, Psalm 14, 1 through 3, Psalm 55, 1 through 3, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 7, 20. And so I can say, wait, these are all the places this comes from. And so it's a helpful thing for us to do sometimes is to pay attention, especially when it's introduced with something like, as it is written, it's saying these are coming from somewhere else. And so to see where Paul is drawing, Paul isn't simply creating ideas out of thin air. Paul isn't making this, but he's saying this reality we face is something that God's people have faced all along and God has inspired people to talk about previously. And so he begins by saying, this couple in verse 11, there's no one who understands, there's no one who seeks God. And then in verse 18, there's no fear of God before their eyes. And so kind of begins, he brackets it at the beginning and the end with this idea, this is in part the underlying condition. This is part the cause of it all is people don't pay attention to God. They don't fear God. In other words, they're not paying attention to what God has to say. And that's kind of the root problem and one of the things that's been going on all along. And then he begins, in, particularly in verses 13 through 17, to paint the picture of what that looks like. And so we ask ourselves, maybe one of the things I ask myself is, as I'm looking at this set of verses, verses 13 through them, what do I do with them? Well, one way we might use them simply as a self-examination checklist. We might read through them and say, how does that look like me? And maybe not simply for us as an individual, but maybe us as a church, a local congregation, or us as the church, the evangelical covenant church, or us as the church in the United States, more broadly. So how does this paint a picture of ourselves? And we see one of the things that he focuses on is the issue of violence and breaking peace. He goes on to, he says, the way of peace they do not know. And he talks about it both in terms of the words we use and the things we do. Well, listen to this again. He said, their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice to street. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. And so he's painting this, like everything we use to speak. Their throats, their tongues, their lips, their mouths are these weapons. And then he goes on, their feet are swift to shed blood in the way of peace. And so it's this picture of like, we, because that's what he's talking about. At first we think, well, they, and there's that temptation again. Well, they, that's somebody else. But he's talking about we, he said, are evil from head to toe. I mean, there's nothing that's going on. And so he's pointing at it. And so I want to look at a couple of these and think about what they look like and how we might examine. So last week, we talked a little bit about the issue of sharing false information. And this week, I want to speak to one that's somewhat related here is as this picture of their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers on their lip, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, the way we speak the things we say, and the way it hurts and destroys people. None of those sound pleasant. I mean, who, who wants a throat that looks like an open grave? I mean, I mean, open grave, that sounds kind of, you know, like poison of vipers, cursing and bitterness. And so we think of things like what we call conspiracy theories. And so if you're familiar, the idea of a conspiracy theory is what? That there's this sense of, I know something that nobody else does. 
Conspiracy theory is basically an idea that tries to present a solution to a problem that lays the blame on a small group of people who are controlling things. An explanation for an event that involves a group. Usually there's a secret plot going on. That's what we call them conspiracy theories. So conspiracy theories have been in the news recently. There was a, a trial involving a man named Alex Jones. Alex Jones was a news uh, personality who claimed in after the 2012 shooting at the Sandy Hook Elementary School, which killed 20 students and six teachers, Alex Jones went on to say that it was all fake. That this didn't really happen, that they were simply actors and actresses. And recently, Alex Jones was finally brought before the court and then eventually admitted that, yeah, it was real. But what happened was the way these, this conspiracy theory did damage. One, it caused people, because his theory, and again, conspiracy theory, the idea was simply that it wasn't fake, but there was a reason it was fake. Well, they faked it because people wanted to control the use of guns in the United States. And if we can fake a school shooting, that will get people behind the idea of no more guns in the United States. And people got behind this. In fact, many of the families who had children killed at Sandy Hook experienced online harassment. They experienced death threats, letters written to them, people in the streets, because Alex Jonas had, had painted them as liars, as actors and actresses. So the people who believed their guns might be taken away because of this school shooting were now harassing these people. And so we see this cycle, and we see that the violence that gets done. And why does it matter? Because... I've read a number of different studies, looked at a number of different studies, that one of the people group that's most likely to believe conspiracy theories, and again, people define conspiracy theories differently, what are conspiracy theories, are conservative Christians. And in, even if it's not, it's not a dramatic difference, but the fact that we believe these things, and why does that make a difference? And why do we believe them? And that's one of the questions that we get at here, and that's why I want to paint this difference between capital S sin and little s sins is there's a tendency to believe. Why? Why do people believe conspiracy theories, do you think? I mean, whether it's, you know, the jets flying through the air, the contrails are secretly seeding things, or, or the, you know, coronavirus vaccine contained little nanobots that would be activated by the 5G network. The earth is flat. In which, in a recent study, there was about 10% of people age 18 to 24 said, well, that might be true. Or the moon landing was faked. All these kinds of conspiracy. Or that 9-11 was actually a government job. And so these things go on. And so why do people believe that? Part because we see these events happen and we, we want answers. It's a whole lot easier. We see a shooting go on at a school. And we think, well, this doesn't make any sense. We, we want to find an answers. We want to feel in control. And so it's sometimes easier to paint the picture of these events going on as there's some secret group behind all this. Because it gives us a sense, well, well we, we know why it's happening. And so what's going on here is we're seeking the answers, but we're looking for the security in those answers rather than the security of the place that's supposed to be, which is in God. And so that's one way we see this power of sin at work is conspiracy theories get believed because instead of trusting in God and putting our security there, we want to find the answers and we go digging for them. Another way that sin is at work in conspiracy theories is the way they're rooted in tribalism. 
And so conspiracy theories often get shared in the people when we're most likely to believe a conspiracy theory. I'll tell you, I, there's probably ones I believe. I don't know. Is when it says something bad about the people I disagree with, right? I mean, if I see a conspiracy theory that's saying something that's like, oh, I mean, if there was a conspiracy theory about pastors, I don't whatever, you know, make, make up some conspiracy theory about pastors, I was like, no, that's not true. But now if I see a conspiracy theory about atheists, well, yeah, obviously, that's, you know, that's what's going on. We see it between Republicans and Democrats, this likelihood to see that we believe the best about those we want to believe the best about, and we believe the worst about those we want to believe the worst about. There was a, back in 2016, a story um, just shortly before the election about um, the murder of uh, an aide to Hillary Clinton and claiming it was a suicide and stuff. It was shared online, and this got shared on Facebook over 1.6 million times. And it was a news article from, uh, the name of the paper I think was called the Denver Times, or the Denver Post, I don't remember the exact name. The point was, though, that paper doesn't actually exist. But there was a person who had created this news story, and basically the reason they were creating the news stories was to make money. Because they realized if, if I create a story, people click on it, I make money. But as people saw this, if you were opposed to Hillary Clinton, and you saw this story, you're like, well, yeah, look at that. Here's more proof that she's not a good person. And so there was this tendency to believe it, whereas my guess is most of the people who would have supported Hillary Clinton in 2016 didn't share this story. But if you believe the story, if you're opposed to Hillary Clinton, you share the story. And so you see what happens with conspiracy theories is they tend to divide. They tend to separate us, which is the power of sin at work, because sin, instead of God's desire to bring people together, sin, the power of sin's desire is to break people apart. Which brings us, and then I, I already mentioned how this um, these sharing of conspiracy theories led to violence, which is the next thing I want to look at is this issue of violence. And again, I shared earlier the story of Cain and Abel. Violence is a part of the human condition. It's something that has been since the beginning of time, one of the very first sins, little less was this sin of a brother killing a brother. But it goes throughout the history of humankind where people find more, way, more ways to commit violence against each other. This is, their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. It's the story of the Bible where Cain and Abel, and then when God sends the flood, he says one of the problems with the world is the violence in the world. And it goes on, and we see down through history all these times where violence, and we can, all we have to do is look back in the last 100 years of human history. We see war after war after war. And violence, not only in terms of war, but all sorts of different ways. And we see violence as a solution to problems. It's the plot of half the action, well, three quarters of the action movies are out there. I've talked about this before. Now, redemptive violence, like, what's the solution to a problem? Get a gun. Get everything. Whatever it is. And it goes back, it's not just new movies, it's back to Charles Bronson and Clint Eastwood and now with Liam Neeson or whoever pick your action star and like 
something bad happens, what's the best solution? Just load up with the guns. And that's like the, the montage scene in the great action movies is the hero like stuffing guns and knives in every pocket they have to go out and solve the problem. Michael Gorman in his commentary on Romans says this, he says, most Christians have paid insufficient attention to the gospel's focus on violence. And here he describes, he says, violence is more than just that killing. It's verbal and physical, emotional and spiritual. He says, most individual and corporate privately executed and state-sanctioned as a fundamental dimension of the human predicament that God and Christ came to heal. In other words, this is part of what Jesus came to heal. And to recognize that we as people, human beings are creative at inventing ways to inflict violence. From the unborn to the end of life. It comes in physical violence. It comes in emotional violence. It comes in all different ways. And so we think about this as the enslaving power of sin. And so Netflix, right now, two of the top 10 shows on Netflix are about Jeffrey Dahmer. And if you're not familiar with Jeffrey Dahmer, Jeffrey Dahmer, I'm not going to, was a serial killer who killed, I think, 17 individuals. And so what's gone on is this serial killer People are engrossed in watching and hearing about the stories. And we kind of wonder what, what has gone on where we start to see this as something. And so I think Simone Weil, the French philosopher, has a great quote. He says this, Imaginary evil is romantic and varied. Real evil is always gloomy, monotonous, barren, and boring. Imaginary good is boring. But real good is always new, marvelous, and intoxicating. And so what happens is what Wheel is getting at is the way that evil is normalized. And that's the power of sin, capital S. This enslavement where we begin to normalize evil. So one way this happens is in what is sometimes referred to in the United States as a rape culture. And so one out of six women in the United States will be a victim of completed or attempted rape. But what is rape culture? Rape culture normalizes it. And so rape culture says, well, our goal should be to teach women not to be raped. How not to be raped? Well, shouldn't what we be teaching is not to do the raping in the first place? Victims are blamed. Jokes are made. Men begin to see women as existing solely for their benefit or for their pleasure, which is not something new to the 21st century, but goes back to the Bible. We think of one of our great heroes of the Bible, King David, who did exactly that to a woman named Bathsheba. Saw her as simply something to possess, something to use. And so there's something deeper going on here is what sin has done is said it's kind of normal. Well, it's going to happen. And comedians and television shows make jokes about it. And so, and the victims get blamed. And so there's this sense where now the power of sin has normalized it and caused us as people to say, well, it's, it's, just, it's just part of life. It's just something that's going to happen instead of to recognize what's going on in the society and that sin is enslaved. And we've begun to say normalize and to tell little boys, well, you know, you have this desire for girls and it's just, it's something it's every man's battle. It's something you can't deal with. You know, you're, you're going to have this, you're going to lust after women. It's just going to happen. 
We say, well, wait a minute. Is that really the case? Or have we fallen under this power of sin and slaveness that says it's okay? But I want to go, want to look at one other issue, and that's the issue of euthanasia. Or I think a better term might be medical-assisted killing. And so what is euthanasia? Euthanasia is a practice where people near the end of life, or maybe even earlier in their life, receive assistance from a physician in some way to take medication or drugs or something to facilitate their death, to lead to their death. And now I want to distinguish, as, I, as we think about this, it's a complicated topic and we could spend a long time talking about it, but there's a difference between active killing and not prolonging life. So there's a difference between active killing and not prolonging life. And so euthanasia is not the matter of someone comes in and they've got a untreatable cancer and, they say, and the doctor says, well, we could give you this treatment and it's going to cost $14 million and your body's going to suffer for it, but we could give you one more month of life. And the person says, well, no, I'd rather not. That's not euthanasia. Euthanasia is when someone comes and says, I, I'm, just, I'm suffering and I'm in a lot of pain. Could you give me something to speed that along? To directly cause the death of the person. And we think of that as something we realize there are countries around the world and there are states here in the United States where it is growing and is becoming more and more common for people to take this on. And where do we see this is one is sin, it's a sin to kill someone, but the temptation, this power of sin enslaving is where, why does this become true? Because what's happening in the states, for example, in Oregon, studies have been done, and after physician-assisted suicide, again, I would say medical-assisted killing, has begun, that there is an exponential rise in the number of people doing it. In other words, in countries like the Netherlands, as these things, as euthanasia is introduced, it becomes more common, more popular. And what's gone on is that evil or sin has been normalized. And what's the underlying power of it? Part of it is, and there's lots of different things that we can go on, is one of the reasons that sometimes people seek it, and, and there's a complicated relationship going on because sometimes it's the people seeking it, and sometimes it's family or friends kind of encouraging people. And why? Because sometimes the, the feeling of some people is they're no longer productive. Well, I just, you know, I'm really, I'm not able to do the things I want to do. I'm not really, I'm not a, I'm not a contributing member of society, and so I might as well be dead. Now, do you see the potential for where that leads to? And who we decide, who's a productive member of society? Do we then begin to see even newborn infants? So there's a scholar at, I use the term loosely, at, at Princeton University, an ethicist named Peter Singer. And he has basically argued that same thing, that there's this sense of where the only people who have a right to life are autonomous individuals, people who are fully functioning. So eventually, he's fine with even the killing of babies because babies aren't productive members of society. They're not able to think. They're not able to contribute to society. And so what happens is this power of sin begins to enslave and says, well, we're going to evaluate people's value based on what they contribute to society. Whereas God says, the value of people is based in what? Being created in the image of God. 
But the power of sin, this enslaving, says, no, it's how much can you contribute to society? Or this sense of autonomy. I have the rights to my own body. I'm being autonomous. I'm an autonomous individual, and I get to control when I live, when I die. Part of that is a failure to think of the effect on others. Or it's economics. You know, so, well, it's going to cost all, it'll be a whole lot cheaper for my family. Again, story of a woman out west who was experiencing problems with a, with a severe form of cancer and went to her insurance company and the insurance company said, well, you know, we're, we're not going to cover those treatments for that. And she said, well, what about physician-assisted suicide? The insurance company said, yeah, we'll cover that. But economics play lots of roles is, do we want it? Well, imagining someone in those stages of cancer and realizing this fact, which we don't need the Bible to tell us, medical care is expensive. And so someone may be looking at their family and saying, well, I, you know, I don't want to burden my family. And so wouldn't it be just better for them economically if I just took my life? Or maybe the family sitting on the other side it's kind of encouraging grandma along because the longer grandma's in the hospital, the less money they'll inherit is. And you think, well, no, that wasn't it. It happens. And so there's this picture because why? Because sin, the power of sin is enslaved and we've started to see human life purely in economic terms and what they value. Or to even ask what kind of life is worth living. You know, if I lose, you know, this ability or that ability, if I'm no longer able to think of it, is that really a life worth living? And so again, we've started to evaluate the nature of life because again, sin is saying that life is just simply something we can evaluate as opposed to saying it's something that God values and God values each and every life from the womb to the tomb. And it also leads to this power where the right to die leads to a duty to die. Well, I, you know, I'm going to do this for the sake of my family. And so the power of sin, this structure, is that this becomes normal. And as it becomes normal, and I'm going to use the term normal, I'm going to put the air quotes around normal, people are given less assistance for ways to cope. Because a system of sin, a structure of sin begins to develop, which says, as I'm a, if I'm a doctor, well, you know, this is the normal way, so I'm going to begin acting in this way. And so I'm not going to maybe necessarily offer as many options for ways to care, but quickly be more quick to move to, here's a way to take your own life. So people are expected to take up offer for assistance in dying. And that what sin does, capital S sin does, is it begins to organize our society around euthanasia. It begins to organize our society around this issue of death. And so when Paul is talking here, back to the scripture, their feet are swift to shed blood. He's saying it happens because the power of sin begins to enslave us. And so we begin to think about monetary value. We begin to think about productivity. We begin to think about human value. Not in what terms of what God says, but in terms of what sin tells us. And so when he says we're under the power of sin, we can look at the individual sins, small s, of killing an individual by physician-assisted killing, or we can begin to also recognize that underneath that, there's other powers at work, and the power of sin is at work. The power of sin that decides which lives have value. 
What does it mean to have value of life? And then to begin to decide, well, that's, that's inconvenient. It's expensive. They're not really productive. And that's the enslaving thing that goes on. And what Paul is getting at here is that this is the power of sin at work. And so he finishes up. And we're going to come back to some concluding things. He says, we know whatever the law says, it says to those under the law. And basically he's saying, you know, the law exposes that all are guilty. What scripture exposes that all are guilty? And also, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. In other words, the law reveals the sin. It shows us not only the individual sins, but it shows us the power of sin. But the law can't make us right. In other words, what Paul is getting at here is we're stuck and we need an intervention. Our family went and did an escape room yesterday and part of the escape room was solving these problems so that we could get out of the room that we're locked in. Sin is not an escape room. There are no puzzles to solve. It's a sin is this escape room where we're locked in and all the locks are on the outside. And the only way to get out is for someone to open the door from the outside. And the only one who can open that door is Jesus. And so what Paul is painting as a picture of here is that we're stuck and we need an intervention. And so when he talks about, back in chapter 1, the power of the gospel, when he talks about salvation, he's saying God needs to intervene to rescue us. God needs to intervene to forgive us our sins, but also to pull us out from that power of sin and to help us see because we are so stuck and we are so enslaved in it, we can't even see what's right and wrong. And so part of what Paul is doing here is he's painting this long list. He said, why does Paul spend so long telling us about all these sins? Because part of it is we need to realize we're stuck. I mean, if we don't think there's a sin, then we don't need to worry about getting a way out. But what he's pointing to is to see the extent of the disease. Because I know for me, a long, for a long time, Sins were just, I mean, there were these little things I did. Well, I told this lie. I took this thing. I, I said this thing to this person. I had these thoughts. And I was like, well, yeah, it's really not so bad. But what Paul wants to point us to as he does this, paints this picture of, you know, I could say, well, I, you know, I said something unkind to somebody last week. And Paul says, no, your throat's an open grave. Your tongue practices deceit. You have poison of viper on your lips. Your mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. I'm like, well, no, it's really not. Paul said, yeah, it is that bad. Your feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark your ways. In other words, he wants us to understand how extensive the disease is. How extensive the power of sin is over us. Because when we see the extent of that disease, we realize how amazing the gospel is. Again, maybe to go to our escape room, if you think like, oh, well, if I see my escape room as a, as a cardboard box, so well, I get, you know, that's not so bad. You know, Jesus broke me out of a cardboard box, big deal. But what if we imagine the escape room as, you know, multiple walls and locks and concertina wire and landmines and moats all around and stuff. It's like, there's no way I'm getting out. And Jesus comes and breaks us free of that. 
And so Paul is intentionally painting this picture to help us understand how amazing the good news is, and that's what we're going to get to next week. So I don't want to leave us hanging on the walk out of here and say, Pastor says I'm terrible. Because we never want to end there. The gospel wants us to know and to understand that. Paul wants us to know and to understand the depths of our sin, but only then to bring us to that point where we realize how amazing the good news of Jesus is. That Jesus comes and deals with our individual sins. That those words I use, the things we say and do, the things we you know, leave, say and leave unsaid, the things we do and leave undone, thought, word, and deed, failure to love God as our, and failure to love our neighbor. All these are, we can catalog the list of sins. And in Jesus, we find forgiveness for those. That he wipes the slate clean, that he declares us innocent and, and free. But not only does he do that, because that in itself would be really good news. But the really good news, not only does he do that, he comes and breaks us free of that power of sin. The power of sin that causes us to do those things. The thing that begins to enslave us. And because we realize that sometimes most of us have that one or two things we struggle with, don't we? We think, well, why do I, why do I keep doing that? Because if you've been around church any amount of time, you know the difference between right and wrong, don't you? You know which things are sins and which things aren't. So the question is, why do you keep doing them? I mean, shouldn't it be as simple as me just telling you, stop it, here's the list of sins, stop them. Then we could all go home. Doesn't work for me, and I'm guessing it doesn't work for you. Because there's what Paul is talking about is we are all under the power of sin. And so Jesus comes to break us free from that. Like I said, we're going to be able to get a chance to get more into what that looks like in chapters 5, 6, and 8 and see what that looks like. But what I want us to see today is the depth of what we're caught in. And that what we're caught in is the power of sin. And to realize the darkness the depths that we're stuck in. And when we see that and how terrible it is to realize then, not to like dwell on how bad it is, but then to use that to celebrate how good the good news of Jesus is. How amazing that rescue is. Because it is truly amazing. Amen.